Our scripture reading this evening is Jeremiah 29, 1 through 9. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shephan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Grace be to God. All right, we're coming to the end of our Faith and Work series, and let me just give you some highlights. I won't review everything, uh, but your work matters, and your work is a highly spiritual activity. So when you organize, and when you repair, and when you account for things, and when you schedule, and you clean, and you logistically prepare, and you're doing God things. You're doing God things. And what that does is it separates and kills that silly secular work and sacred work. It just kills it. And we realize that work is really frustrated by a real enemy. It can be the sin in yourself, the sin in other people, and a real enemy, capital E, who's against order and loves chaos and and loves to see beautiful things perverted. So we saw that work is really oppressed by the effects of sin. And so when you go into a workplace and your coworker's crazy and your boss is mean, um, it shouldn't surprise us. And we say, I I knew it was going to be like this. I knew it. I knew it because sin touches everything. Um, But then we found out that work is redeemed by the work of Christ in this way is that um, because there was a broken relationship with God, what we did is we went to our work and we would do something and we would think it was good and we wanted other people to look at it was good so that our work would yell back at us and scream back at us, you are, you are full of dignity, you are finally lovable, you're amazing because of this work you did. Not because you're a son of the Most High or a daughter of the Most High, but because of this work you did. And so when Christ comes, 
He says, look, I'm going to repair that relationship between you and God the Father in me so that you know for certain it is through my work that you are loved and you have dignity and you are a co-creator and you're an inheritor of all my good things. And so work necessarily has to become something else because we don't run to work for it to be an identity maker. And then we, we discussed how we're now, this other thing that work does, because we don't need it for dignity anymore, um, is it can become, uh, we can become a part of the world repair that God is doing before he finally repairs it. And we discovered that our, what we do matters and will extend into eternity. It doesn't just stop and new stuff happens. No, the stuff we work on becomes more lovely, more beautiful in eternity through the work of Jesus. And so our work matters and is a highly spiritual activity. That's a good recap. Um, so I, I, I want to ask this question for us is, uh, and I think it's apropos for sure for those who are in the metro area of the LA basin for sure, is uh, how, how should we live in a culture and a city and a neighborhood in a workplace uh, that is largely, and growing in number, mind you, um, largely unimpressed with Christianity, hostile to Christianity, against everything that we prize, follow, value, whatever it is. Um, and, what, and I guess addendum question is, what does that mean for my work? What does that mean for my work? Uh, so I wanna do this in two general parts, and I wanna look at Jeremiah 29, just I want to zoom in just a little bit. And then in part two, I want to look at what are the implications um, that that has for my work and your work? What are the implications? So in that 29th chapter, um, something historically fascinating has been uh, captured and archived, uh, kept, copied, recorded faithfully for centuries upon centuries. And it's actually a pretty short letter that Jeremiah wrote. And uh, it, it's interesting is because at this time now in, in Jeremiah's life, um, this letter is going to be received and they're going to actually listen to it. <laughs> Before in Jeremiah, they, no one respected him and they put him in a well. <laughs> but now that all of his prophecies came through, they're like, oh, maybe that Jeremiah guy wasn't so crazy. Um, let's get his take on what's, what we should do here in Babylon. Um, so who is this little letter to? Well, it's to all the um, people that have been carted off to Jerusalem. Uh, but I, I, I just want to give you a little background. And I think we know this maybe through studies, but I think we forget the extent of it is when Babylon finally came to Jerusalem, uh, they destroyed so much. And it's really hard to get a scale scope of, of the destruction that did happen. It's hard, so removed from antiquity, it's hard to get our heads around it. But the intent of Babylon was to eradicate an entire nation. Um, this wasn't war in a classical sense where you have one battle and then, um, uh, you know, and then there's an occupation and, uh, and there's a clear winner and you know the rules where, okay, we don't kill all the civilians. It wasn't a war in a classical sense. It was Nebuchadnezzar's final solution for the pesky Israel problem. And so um, all the cities, including Jerusalem, they, they, they are really completely leveled. We're talking walls leveled. Um, uh, all cultural landmarks leveled. All temples, synagogues leveled. Uh, 
homes indiscriminately burned. There wasn't a civilian clause like, hey, I don't ha- I'm not part of the army. You can't do anything. <laughs> you know, just no civilian clause. Uh, and this was the intent too, is when they went through, when Babylon went through, they were burning entire um, fields and crops and vineyards and storage facilities and um, warehousing of goods. And the reason why is they didn't care what happened to you in the winter. Like that was, they, they weren't trying to get stuff. They were trying to actually eradicate. Um, so men, women killed, abused, raped, kidnapped, sold, used. Um, if you didn't escape to the countryside or beyond, um, you were killed. And I just can't overemphasize the scale of loss upon loss upon loss. Uh, this last week I just uh, watched, um, it, this is a 90s documentary, but it's Spielberg's about the Hungarian Jews um, at the, near the end of the war. Like there was no sense for Hitler to accelerate his extermination of the Jews, but with the Hungarian Jews, they, they even sped it up. Even when they knew they were gonna lose, they, they sped it up. And so I just want you to get the sense of just massive loss upon loss upon loss that is happening in Jeremiah 29, in the context of Jeremiah 29. Uh, now, you could save your life if you proved your usefulness to Babylon. And um, because what Nebuchadnezzar did is uh, he, he, he took the best and the brightest back to Babylon. So if you were the most skilled, if you were the most beautiful, if you were the elite, if you were the educated, if you were the best engineer, if you were the best artisan, if you were the best metal worker, um, he tra- he'll take you to Babylon and, and you're just going to make Babylon greater. Uh, and this guts any remnants of those that are left It really guts it because they don't have the wherewithal or the education administratively to to build a nation back. Uh, It just makes the victor stronger. It has devastating effects. The rich do get richer and the weak actually get weaker and um, eat much, much less. So the Babylonians were trying to extract as much good as they possibly could and then convert everybody to being Babylonian just over time. This was a, this was a, ancient method of war, not just Babylonian. Um, it was a normal superpower move uh, in ancient history. Now we have, a, we have a little bit of a modern equivalent to this is um, I think it's a little less violent, um, but, but we have devastating social eff- effects from it. Um, in the 70s and 80s, you might remember, um, the U.S. discovered that they had a, a Uh, basically an educational deficit. And there was a massive shortage in all the hard sciences. And so um, our country um, enacted multiple laws, measures and policies that made immigration to the US very, very easy um, with one provision, um, that you were the best and the brightest. You were the best and the brightest. And so countries like Korea and and Pakistan and Bengali, China, India, Egypt, South Africa had a massive educated exodus to the U.S. Um, And and this this U.S. policy has been called the U.S. policy of brain drain. We drained all of the best and brightest from these smaller countries. Now, I don't think the intent was violent but it had massive social implications for these countries. Let me, let me show you how. Um, Melissa and I went to a church planting summit in Malaysia 
uh, it was a summit and training in Malaysia um, a couple years ago, um, and it was for all of Asia Pacific. And uh, there were plant, church planters from all over Asia Pacific came together. And part of our training and part of the, 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 the threaded throughout the programs of the week um, were all of these um, basically reports, people and videos, like this is what's happening where we are. This is what's happening. And this is how we're interacting with the brokenness in our city and our country. And so they would talk um, how it intersected with uh, sectors of business and art and um, uh, commerce. Uh, and and uh, many of these, there was a common thread throughout all of these planters around the Asia Pacific is that uh, they were trying to puzzle over and solve how do we educate our children and our people with the best possible education in math, sciences, and technology, and beyond, and then ask them to care for their own cities and communities and countries and not immigrate to the US. So this was just two years ago, and this, these developing countries are trying to figure this out. Why? Because the, the, the massive social effects that have happened is, is, is mind-numbing. Okay, perhaps it was more devastating in antiquity because of the killing of people and the intent, intent is eradication. But if you're a Jew in exile, if you're a Jew in Babylon, um, you can't observe all your normal religious traditions. You can't. Um, and word gets back to Jeremiah. What do you want us to do? We've got none of the trappings of how to follow Yahweh properly. We're not in the right place. We don't have a temple. We don't have, the, we don't have a nation. We don't have governance. We, we can't do everything that's been commanded us to do. And what do we do now? How do we follow? Well, how do we follow Yahweh exiled in a very strange land? And how do we follow Yahweh when we are being abused and we're being killed and there's a complete disregard for our person and rights. And so Jeremiah writes back a very, very powerful little letter. And he's writing to the elites and he's writing to the, the most educated and the brightest and the best and the most beautiful. Incredible workers. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build houses there and I want you to settle down. That's verse five of Jeremiah 29. I want you to plant gardens and I want you to eat from them. I want you to marry, I want you to build a family, I want you to find wives for your sons, I want you to find husbands for your daughters. I want you just to just increase in number. All right, I want you to think of this. What made you come to the big city? If it's San Francisco, if it's NYC, if it's DC, or if it's LA, why do people, I'll include Chicago. Why do people go? Well, they go to get something from the city. A bigger degree, five year stint in the field office. Find your fame, find your, you, most of us go to the city and say, this city is gonna give me something 
and then I'm going to bail. And Jeremiah says this, also, P.S., I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Pray for the city. Pray that the city is successful. Now, these are the oppressors now. These are the people that are meanies. And then Jeremiah says, as they prosper, you will prosper. He just links them up. Now, what does Jeremiah say? Why does Jeremiah say this? I'm not going to unpack these. I think this is a sermon series all by itself. But he says this. I'm going to blitz through them. He attaches their own spiritual and physical welfare to the spiritual and physical welfare of their neighbors. He assumes they are getting tons of hostility and hate. He assumes it's not their real home. Assumes it. And then he says this, the same energy that you would apply to your real home I want you to apply to not your real home. That's very same energy. That's why he's saying, I want you to settle, and I want you to marry, and I want you to plant gardens, I want you to build cool stuff. And I he's expecting it to be generation. He, it's gonna be a while. It's gonna be a while. So he has a goal for them while they are in exile. This is the goal. I want you to make Babylon awesome and beautiful and full of peace. I want you to bring all of Shalom to Babylon. I want you to bring every category of work and life and beauty to Babylon. Now, what is their future? Jeremiah says it. He says it actually in verse 10 and 11. It's not printed in your online bulletin, but I want you to, I'm gonna read it out loud because you've heard this in a different context, but now it's gonna sound differently tonight. This is what their future is. This is what the Lord says. That's what verse 10 says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Here's the familiar part to you, but it sounds differently tonight. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That sounds a little differently than it does in a high school yearbook, doesn't it? Um, okay, now part two. I want to look at the implications that that has for you and your work and me and my work. Hey, Christian, uh, did you know that you're in exile? Did you know that you're not in your real home and that you are just a sojourner? I'm not getting that as much from Jerbear as I am from First Peter. He says that he says, "Dear friends." I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And then Peter goes on to sound eerily like Jerbear. I'm going to apologize in heaven to Jeremiah 
but I won't do it tonight. He says, look, I want you to live such good lives among pagans that even though they accuse you of doing something wrong, they, they just see how your, your good deeds, your good works, they look and, and, and then they glorify God on the day that he visits us because, because of what you've done. Listen to what Peter says. If you ever want to talk to me about politics, promise me you'll read 1 Peter 2 before you come talk to me. He says this, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors, sub-authorities. He goes on, he goes, do so much good that you would silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. This is 1 Peter. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now that should puzzle you. Now in light of Jeremiah, in light of Peter, um, how does this touch on our work in following Jesus at and in our work? Well, it's simply this is um, plug yourself into a real community and a city. You can't avoid it. You can't be like, well, I'm only going to be here for two or three years, so I better not, I better not put down any, no, 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 that's nonsense. That's nonsense. Apply yourself to not your real home as if you were applying yourself to your real home. Second, um, marrying and making all those gardens and all the attachments to family life. That is real spiritual work. So becoming old, growing old in the structure of building families and communities and organizations and school board meetings and, and PTA meetings and, and uh, sports and activities and um, Saturday Chinese school and, and um, all of that is real spiritual work. That is missionary work. That is missionary work. Do good work. Third, so, so do your work so well that it shuts up naysayers. Jeremiah says this, and it's, this is, now we're moving into something that I think is the most revolutionary and the most difficult part of this passage. He says this, honor and bless the Babylonians. Peter says it this way, honor the emperor and governors. Honor the governor who tells you to wear a mask. Now, I'm gonna tell you something. This is absolutely revolutionary. And I'm gonna tell you this, to, to antiquity ears, Jeremiah, what? That, that, that is revolutionary. It's revolutionary in modernity. If I tell you that, you're like, wait a second. Okay, so you're telling me to honor the presidents? Any of the presidents? Uh, let me, it's revolutionary. And I'll tell you why. Is all your fomenting anger at other parties and other presidents, plural, um, actually not so revolutionary, very common, very tired, very predictable, has not worked at fixing things ever. Very, very common. Now, how does this touch on work in your workplace? All right. Your work now 
inside of this revolutionary thought. Can't just be about your career. It can't be about your aspirations and your dreams. Now, this is the revolutionary thought. Now, this is as a Jesus follower, now, here comes the revolutionary thought. Now you are working for the careers of other people as well. That is revolutionary. Now I am working for the welfare and the advancement of my coworker. Revolutionary. Countercultural. Now I am working for the institutional success of my company. And now I'm not just working for a pathway to the corner office and, and stock options and early retirement and maybe a parking place that I don't have to pay for on a monthly basis. See, see this is now Peter gets at it because now he's talking about the embodiment of how we love those are hostile to us. Jesus called it loving your enemy. This is countercultural. Let me just tell you this. It is revolutionary. It is an act of defiance against brokenness. It is full on repair of everything that you say you hate about our society and culture. And this, Jeremiah gives a roadmap, a powerful road, a revolutionary countercultural roadmap to wholeness and healing. Um, you guys remember Mike Kim, uh, worship director here for a while, and we, we were teaching on loving the city, um, I don't know, five years ago. And Mike came to me and he said, um, you know, this teaching is really new to me. And he said, being a 1.5, he said, my parents who were 1.0s, they did not think of the city as a city that you bless. They thought of the city as a scary place that, that, that you have to defend yourself against, guard against, stay away from, build a safe enclave, not to be a part of the city. And he said, they would have never have told me to bless the city and work for the city's flourishing or my coworkers flourishing. And, and Mike said this to me and it linked up something that I hadn't thought before. He said this, any Jesus follower can do this at any place in the globe. And something clicked for me. When Mike said that back to me, I was like, oh, wow. That's the mission of God or on the earth. It can happen anywhere, at any place with any Jesus follower. All right, I have four uh, questions and it's a finale for, for our, our series. And I, when I say these four questions, um, I would be really, really disappointed if, if, you, if you're a checklister and a checkboxer and you just want to do the right thing all the time. I would be so disappointed if, if you told me, you know what, um, I answered all those questions tonight, I'm good. No, I actually fully expect these four questions that I'm going to ask you, it's actually going to take you a few years to answer in thoughtful depth. So if you tell me you've answered them tonight, I'm going to be like, yeah, keep thinking about them. Keep thinking about them. Come back to me three years from now. Here's the first one. And this will be a culmination, I think, of our series is I want you to think about this in your work, in your workplace. What is good 
about the work that you do. And you're gonna have to think deeply on this because you're gonna have to say, oh, what, what character attributes of my God is my work reflecting and bearing out? Like, how, do, how, does, how do other people gain advantage through not just my specific work, but it could be my team's work or my division's work or my company's, what my company does or my, my specific sector? my economic sector of what I do. Like, how does it bring human flourish? Like, what good is in my work? That, that's, that's a question I think we're gonna unpack in the months ahead. Second question, it's gonna take you a while. What is missing in my work right now? And you're gonna have to be really honest with yourself and you're, it could, because it could be joy. You're like, I, I don't enjoy my work. It could be purpose that's missing. It could be linking to your work, to the mission of God, that could be missing. You're like, I don't know what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, except for a paycheck, security maybe. It could be this, you know, rest is missing from my work. It could be um, productivity is missing from it. And why is that? So I, I want you to ask, that's a, that's a good question to keep alongside. What is missing from my work? Third question. What is broken in my work and my workplace? So again, that could be your specific job. It could be your team, division, company, or your, your economic sector. What is not working well? What could be done better? And I know the ways in which it can be done better. And that's, a, that's a long, thoughtful developing question. Fourth one, a little harder because we don't, we don't like using this word, but what evil is at and in my work? What do I need to actively fight against its continuance and fight that ceasing of the evil stops? And again, it could be a sector thing. It could be a company thing. It could be a team thing. Those are going to be good activating questions in your discipleship in Jesus at your work. Final story for you. I read this article about a guy and what he, he and his wife had bought this historical home right, on, right before they were about to retire. And um, they knew it was a mess. Um, they, they knew it had problems. They knew things were in shambles and were rotting. But being a historical house uh, on, a, on a register, they had, to, they had to abide by certain things, putting it back together. But they thought, hey, this is going to probably be a retirement project. And then it's going to be just a beautiful, after we do all the hard work, it's going to be a beautiful place. And uh, the guy was a bit of a handyman himself, and um, he didn't have all the skills, but, but he was, you know, he picked up quite a bit. And he was meticulous. It was kind of his personality. He, he loved uh, going to weird old warehouses and finding uh, um, rolls of fabric or wallpaper or uh, pieces of wood, and then they would have to uniquely mill certain pieces for certain places in the house, 
and um, he would spend hours combing through um, vintage auction, auctions online, in person. Um, he would go picking other properties. You know that show Pickers? Like you'd go to old barns or old, and it, trying to find the right, the right piece or maybe a part of a piece that he could break down and use in this house. Um, he was spending way too much money on specific sort of screws. I mean, they were trying to just... <laughs> make all the tolerances and the fittings better than it ever was. And um, he, was, he was spending way too much money on woods and tools and, and this, this, this shed behind him was growing in like just the tools to do this project. And um, he said, you know, in this remodel and rebuilding, he said, it just kind of took a life of its own. And um, he said, it took way more time than we ever thought we'd ever put into it. But, but he said, the more, the more we began to see progress, the more we finished certain parts, they began to like the look of it. And uh, the interviewer said, asked, they said, you know, um, or actually it was just a comment. The interviewer said, um, you know what you've done here is probably better than the original house. <laughs> and um, the guy just said, yeah, you're, you're probably right. Next question. So the interviewer asks him, he says, um, uh, uh, what made you want to do this? What made you want to do this? And the guy said this. He said, at first, I, I love the work and the challenge of it. Um, and then he said, and then I stuck with it. And then I had given too much money to it. I was in too deep. <laughs> I couldn't hurt Matt. Like, we had we'd poured a bunch of cash into it. Uh, and then he said, when I began to see the beauty, I loved it. And then there was a little bit of a pause there. And he says, I guess you could say, I love this house. Don't stretch the illustration too far, but, but listen, isn't that the work of God in us? The final version is going to be better than the original. The cost is high and love is at the bottom of it all. Isn't that God's work in and through your work? Your work, what? Finally, ultimately motivated by love. Not challenge, not paycheck, not fear, not insecurity, not dignity hunting. ultimately powered by love. That's a good vision for faith and work. Let's pray into that. Jesus, uh, we want our work to matter. We want to do it well. And we certainly don't want to abuse it. We don't want... Um, We don't want to run to it, searching for things that you only give. Um, I, I don't want this to be the end, Jesus. Would you continue this in our hearts and minds for months and years to come? As we wrestle with this, as we, as we learn how to live in a city, as we learn how to bless our opponents, Jesus, by your spirit, help us. Amen.